Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome your stud cast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio. And I got to tell you something right now. It's another edition of the Tennessee stud, the stud cast. We are in football season here in the beautiful Southeast. And I got to tell you right now, I'm enjoying this as much as anything that I do because we get a chance now to walk back and bring it alive with Ron Fuller himself, the Tennessee stud. I'm talking about 93 years. I'm talking about four generations. Talking about a story that till now has been speculated about but hasn't been told and surely hasn't been told to the detail that it has been now. And Tennessee Stud, I welcome you to another edition here. You know, it's football season here in the southeast and in beautiful Knoxville, where I'm at, my friend. But it's an incredible time to talk about you, your life story, and everything that we do on the Studcast. It's always a great day to do that. You're always in season, my man. Well, thank you very much, Tony. I'm sure glad to be here. It's a pleasure. You know, it's still hot, but I'm an old football fan myself. Haven't spent a lot of time in Knoxville. I'd have to be a Vol fan, and I certainly am. I hope I don't make people in Florida and Alabama and some other places. Now, Jimmy's a big Alabama fan, and Rob's a big Florida fan, you know, and I know they're going to go, well, Ron, what are you talking about the Vols for? Well, it's because, by golly, I spent a lot of time there, and uh, everybody, we all have our own teams. So it's one. It's a great time of year. I love football. I look forward to it. I like the pro game, but I really like the college game. It's really a fun, fun time. It is. And you do such a great job, Tony, of taking that part of the year and making it special for people in that East Tennessee and across the state and all over, basically everywhere. But uh, you do a great job with it. I always like this time of year, and I'm ready for a good ride today. I thought we had a great ride last week. Mm. It was a. I got a little inspired toward the end of that program. I really felt good about it. You know, you pumped me up when you said the torch was lit last week when we left because I was thinking about that this week as I'm doing my show, you know, and it's football season. And I'm thinking about how commercial college football is now and how sports are so much about money instead of about the heart and soul of the competition as they should be, as they were, you know, when we were kids. We didn't need to be, when you walk into a stadium, have somebody advertising to you every five seconds and – It was about the event itself. The event was enough. But you said something last week about these memories of wrestling, and it's true with the Southern college football as well, or college football 
or it, I guess it can be true about professional football to people listening to us in the Northeast. It's really about those stories that are handed down. It's really about that history. It's really about a father telling his son, hey, I remember going into so-and-so venue, and I remember seeing this great match, or I remember seeing this great game. And that's really where fans are born. It's almost born in your mind. It becomes a part of you. And you said something in our last studcast. You went on this great speech you gave at the end where you ended with the torch is lit. And it's so true, man. I mean, it's just so true. The great thing about it is, Tony, it never goes out. The torch don't go out in people's hearts. And when your heart gets into something, your body follows and your mind follows, and it's there forever. You're not going to put it out. And college football, it's commercialized. A lot of things is so commercialized. Our wrestling today is extremely commercialized. It's a part of our culture, and that's a darn shame in a lot of ways. But it's it's a fact. It is somewhat commercialized, but it's the product itself, just like those matches were years ago. It's the product itself that is really the crux of the matter. The commercialization of it can't kill it. Nothing can kill it. Vince can't kill it. Vince can't kill those He's trying. old feelings. He's trying He's to kill it. He's doing his best, but he can't kill it because it's there forever in their hearts and it's not going to leave them. And I want to just dig down. I want to take that flame and stick it in there again a little bit. I think that's what we're doing here with this particular type of podcast is we're lighting that hearts again of those old fans that said, gosh, it's gone forever. It ain't gone forever. We're here, by golly, and we're going to keep sticking that flame to it. As long as we're going. We're going to claim what's ours. At the end of the day, when you think about what McMahon's, he can buy all the tapes and he can put them all in this clear house and this beautiful, what looks like a beautiful little house. And he can kill the people that go on YouTube and try to post things for the common fan to look at. But at the end of the day, he can't steal your memories. And try as he might, he can't rewrite history. And one of the things you've done on a previous studcast is you caught a promo on him. You said, look, I may never get into his Hall of Fame. You said, I ain't here to get into his Hall of Fame. I'm here to tell the real story, the way it is, the way I know it, the way it was handed down to me. And we're not going to let Vince McMahon rewrite history. Not for me. I mean, you know, I agree with you, Tony. I mean, he can do whatever he wants to to commercialize it. He can take everybody's old programs and he can trash them or whatever he wants to do with them. But he can't touch those people's hearts and he can't touch their memories and their minds. And they've got it there and they still love what we gave them. 30, 40, 50, my granddad back in the 20s and the 30s, Herb and Lester and the blood and the sweat and the tears that all of my family gave for this business. I don't care what he does to it. He'll never tarnish that. Before we get into where we're going to go today, because we are going to begin right smack dab in the middle of the 20th century, actually toward the end of the 1950s is where we're going to go. So I guess we're a little past the midway point. But I do want to remind you, if you want to ask a question of the stud, you can do so at Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook. Also, want to encourage you to check out tnstud.com. Again, tnstud.com. That website is up and running. 
And if you want to reach out to the stud, perhaps you want to uh, purchase something over at the store. You've got a lot of terrific items there. So want to encourage you to check out tnstud.com. As I was saying, Ron, when we left in our last episode, I want to start here. It's the end of the Gulf Coast as far as your father's involvement in it, and he sells it to the family. We have an old saying in, in Italian parlance, we call it keeping it in the family. And that's exactly what your father does as the territory changes hands to the fields, boys. Share it and pick it up from there. Well, Dad in the late, in 59, had pretty much accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish, I think, along the Gulf Coast. And and he had the Fields brothers, young boys, that great wrestling talents and great guys, Lee, Don, and Bobby Fields. And they're part of his wrestling crew at that point. Lester, one another family member, Dad's uncle, who is about the same age as Dad, He's there in Gulf Coast at that same time. So Dad decides that he wants to go to some place that's dead. He wants to go somewhere that's dead. He sells his business and his farm, not just the company, but he sells the farm that we, that me as a kid, me and Rob as a kid, helped knock down the trees and build the fields, build the uh, arena, the rodeo arena, and build the lakes and, and spent our younger lives on that farm, developed one of the most beautiful properties between Mobile and Pensacola in the United States. It was really a beautiful place. So the Fields Boys take over. And the Fields Boys are, I wish I knew more about them because when we left as a kid, now I'm about 10 years old, 11 years old, I had had some experiences with them. And I'm going to give you an example of one. And this kind of pretty well tells you what kind of guys these guys were. But this was back in my dad's dynamite days, I call them, when we were dynamiting. He got on the dynamite kick and he was buying boxes of dynamite. And we were setting off dynamite, building ditches, blowing stumps, whatever it would be to get a big pow he really enjoyed that so one day the fields brothers come to visit us we've got horses we all get on horses he has a tree toward the back of the property we had 300 acre piece of land and that tree he had been digging the edges of it with a dozer it was a monster old oak tree and he couldn't get the roots out and he wanted to blow the stump but he told me I wanted to, I said, Dad, let's go blow this sucker. And he said, no, he said, I want to save it for the Fields boys. They're going to be coming this weekend, and I want to save it and let them see us blow us up. So Bobby, Don, and Lee, all three of them come. I think it's on a weekend. I don't remember what day of the week it was. Anyway, we get three sticks of dynamite, and we get on horses, and we ride to the back of the property. We tie the horses off probably 200 yards from where the stump is. And we go there, we've got a big auger, and we drill a hole a little larger than the stick of dynamite is into the stump, into the lower part of the stump. Now, he has dug around this stump with a bulldozer, and he's dragged back the edges of the stump, but he couldn't get the stump out of the ground because it was so huge because of the size of the tree. We would then auger that stump and they're inside the hole we're all down in this hole and we're augering this drilling the hole back into the stump we stick in three sticks of dynamite dad cuts a short fuse and sticks it in the dynamite 
the top stick. There's two sticks already buried below that one. We shoved that one down in there. And I know enough about dynamite. I see him when he cuts the fuse that this is not going to be very long. This is not going to take long for this one to blow. So he lights the fuse and we're all five of us, the three fields boys, me and him are all inside the hole and we take off. Me and dad take off. We know that this fuse isn't going to go very long. We look back. I look back. I'm still running. And I look back and I see the three of them fighting each other in the hole. They keep dragging. One gets out and they grab his legs and drag him back in. And another one gets out and they drag him back in. Now this keeps going on for a second, few seconds. And, and I'm thinking these guys are going to die. And they don't know. They've never seen dynamite go off. So they finally, Dad's just about, we're 100 yards away, I'd say. And he screams back at them and he goes, it's going to blow. And they finally take off, all three of them. They probably don't get 30 yards from the where the stump is. And that dynamite explodes. It blows them off a flip. They all three take flips in the air and land on their back. They're laughing like crazy. It blows a piece of stump half the size of a house, it looks like, probably 300 feet in the air. And it lands almost on top of them. I watch that thing coming down thinking, oh, my God, they're dead. It's going to land on them. <laughs> and they never quit laughing. They just giggling and laughing and just having a ball. And that was my first real impression of what the Fields Boys were all about. So those guys take over their own business. Now, they're a group of off-the-wall dudes. They're Welches. They got that Welch blood in them. They come from that side of the family. Roy's sister, Bonds, they're her sons, uh, Virgil Hatfield, that's their daddy. They're cut from a different cloth, just like the rest of us are. And I'm like, wow, I, what are these guys going to do with this business? Well, they light it up. They do a tremendous job for the next 10 years. They just do phenomenal business. They continue to operate the business. It starts to shrink because other people are laying their hands on areas where Roy, now his business is going to start to shrink in size because it's too big. It's too wide and expansive to remain in total control of everything. So the Fields boys along the Gulf Coast are still paying him booking fees, but they have their own group of talent. They're beginning to lose hold on Louisiana. It's beginning to go, oddly enough, to Oklahoma people. Okay, so, uh, and we'll go back maybe a little later here. We'll go into where everybody is at and what's going on around the country and around the world. It's pretty amazing what is going on. But the Fields boys do a great job. The bottom line is they do a great job. Their daddy is a referee. He referees thousands of matches for them. They become stars, big stars along the Gulf Coast. And I owe, and so do those fans there, they remember them still when I visit along the Gulf Coast and go to these autograph shows or these CCW events, whatever it is. These fans are just like Bobby and Don and Lee. They're a part of that history, and they're a part of that our family. You know, you you had said something kind of profound there at the beginning, and you talk about Bobby, Don, and Lee Fields, and you had said, I wish I knew more. I wish we had more about these guys. Why was there so little or is there so little 
known about them, so little written about them, because they had a terrific impact. They had that thing white hot for 10 years. They did some terrific things, some revolutionary things in their territory that maybe we can get into. But why, at the end of all that, is so little left from their time? I think they were like the forgotten part of the family. And they're so far south, they're kind of off the beaten path. You've got to travel through that part of the country. And if you're a wrestling fan, you happen to go to a match, you're going to see some great wrestling. But people don't travel there that much. So they're just not, they're not in the limelight in any manner whatsoever. And, and the reason I don't know more about them is because we moved away. Now we're moving to Memphis. So, so we've separated ourselves. I don't remember for probably 15 years ever going back to Mobile, Alabama or Pensacola or anywhere along the Gulf Coast. We go to Arizona and we go to Colorado and we just we're we're travelers. We don't have family reunions because we're in a sport that's 365 days a year, 24-7. You don't go and visit and you don't have time. You're operating a big company. And these wrestling fans are like milk cows. They got to be, they've got to have that fresh milk. They've got to be milked. They want to see it. They want to see it week after week, and we want to give them the product week after week. That becomes part of the lifestyle of the sport itself. It, you're you're an industrious, driving individual. If you own a wrestling company or you're a wrestler, you want to be wrestling every night. And you don't want to have nights off. You don't want to be sitting at home. You want to be in the action. You want to be there. You want to hear that crowd. You want to get that feeling. You want to hear those pops. It's a great lifestyle. It's a fabulous lifestyle, but it's not good for families because if your whole family is in it, you're not going to see everybody very often. And when you do, those are great moments and you try to remember as much as you can from them. Yeah, it's really interesting because people would think, oh, well, you know, I'm sure Stud's got all these great memories of the fields. No, not really. He moves when he's 10. They go on to Memphis and it makes sense. Your father seems like he'd be the type of guy that would not meddle in somebody's territory. In other words, I've sold this thing to you. Unless you call me and ask me for help and you guys are having trouble moving the needle, I'm not going to come back here and tell you how to run your deal because I'm off worried about how to take Memphis and light it on fire the same way we did the Gulf Coast. That's it. I mean, you know, the ball's in your hands now, guys. You know, I've sold you not only my business, I've sold you my farm. And you take it and do with it what you want to because I'm hitting the road and I'm going to build myself another one. Before we get into Memphis, can we lay a little landscape here about well, maybe we've reached a new yeah. decade. You know, we're right around, right around 1960, and we've reached a decade now in which wrestling is on fire. I mean, it's really on fire everywhere, all over the world. Uh, television has lit it up, and we have lit up television in the early years wrestling programs just made television what it is. It, it made people want to buy a TV to watch wrestling. It was the product they wanted to see. So it's really cranked in now. Everybody is starting now to lay these foundational territories that are going to be there until Vince comes along. They're going to be what everybody in those parts, specific parts of the country are going to be dealing with and what they're going to see. If you don't mind, Tony, I'm just going to go run through some of these 
territories so that people may recognize some of these names. These are all across the country. I'll even finish up with places in the world. Let's just start out with Oklahoma, Leroy McGurk. Leroy McGurk was a tremendous wrestler. He went blind at an early age. And being a wrestler, you didn't need eyes to wrestle. You don't need eyes to wrestle. Once you feel somebody's body, you know what parts you've got. And he was good enough. The story used to be to me that Leroy McGurk could wrestle better than anybody with eyes because if he got his hands on you, he knew what to do with you. He becomes a monster figure in the history of Oklahoma wrestling. He's blind, but he goes and watches matches. He has guys like Bill Watts, who is becoming a football player, uh, University of Oklahoma, going to become a huge figure in Oklahoma wrestling. He has Danny Hodge, who is one of the most fabulous and phenomenal athletes in the history of this country that is a close, close friend of his. Uh, they say that Leroy used to go to the matches and they would stand with him. Bill Watts says he used to stand with him in the back of the arena and he says he would listen to the crowd. He couldn't see the crowd, but he would listen to the crowd. And he said he would tell you when the match was over, whether it was a great match or it wasn't, and he didn't have eyes. And that was his feel for the sport. I never got to meet Leroy. I wish I had been able to meet Leroy. My father met him. My grandfather knew him very well. Roy knew him very well. Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma. He's established himself. He has established that territory. That territory will expand over the next 10 years and the next 20 years into Louisiana. They'll bypass Texas because of the Von Erichs in Dallas. Mm -hmm. They won't step on Von Erich's toes, but because Lee and them have focused more on the eastern side of Gulf Coast, it offers them an opportunity to squeeze in there and take control of Louisiana. Yeah, so if I'm hearing you right, before you get into another territory, just about Bill Watts, because what those guys did with Mid-South, and he had that terrific run, and you talk about a product that stands the test of time, and a lot of those tapes are still out there. But it sounds to me that without Leroy McGurk taking Bill Watts under his thumb, Mid-South doesn't become the territory that it became. Yeah, Leroy's a smart guy. He can't see it. I don't guess that's as big of a disadvantage as I would take it to be. He sees people even though he has no eyes, and he makes a great choice there. Bill Watts is a driven guy and a very successful guy, and I will have a lot of history as we roll forward between me and Bill Watts. He's mm. a close personal friend, Awesome. and I'll have many, many Watts stories, and we'll get into those later. But I want to just continue on with a real quick synopsis of what's going on. Uh, Roy Shires now is handling San Francisco. He's making a concerted effort to bring really good wrestling to Northern California. Does a great job at the same time. Don Owens, just north of him in Portland, Oregon. His family is setting up business in the Northwest on into Washington State itself. The Funks in Amarillo, Texas. Dory Sr. is there. He's got two boys that are going to become major stars in wrestling. Both of them are going to become world champions. Never been done before to have two sons in the same family be world champions. Sam Muchnick, 
president of the National Wrestling Alliance. He's in St. Louis, and he operates a few towns around St. Louis, but he operates St. Louis like it is a territory. It is a mega city for wrestling. If you wrestled in the 70s and the early 70s in St. Louis, you are a star or you don't get to be on that card. He is the man when it comes to the National Wrestling Alliance. You got Paul Bosch in Houston, Texas. Tremendous guy. My dad speaks very highly of him. Really had a lot of respect for Paul Bosch. Jim Crockett in the Carolinas. Not the junior, but the senior Jim Crockett in the Carolinas. He's establishing a mid-Atlantic seaboard business that is going to be, in the history of wrestling, one of the very best territories ever developed. Tremendous talent. Florida. Let's just say Cowboy Luttrell and Eddie Graham are in Florida. Florida is like to me it's it has a piece of my heart because i i started there it will become in the 70s the 60s and the 70s one of the absolute best territories that was ever built anywhere run tremendously talk about respect you had respect when you were a wrestler in florida you didn't walk down the street and somebody say something smart ass to you because they knew that it was snake pit country jim barnett we'll talk lots about this name because this guy is a part of american wrestling history this is in the late 50s even the early 50s jim barnett is running the midwest he's running chicago Chicago and Indianapolis and Detroit and these mega cities, he has formed his own network called the Dumont Network. It's a series of big city stations that air what was probably one of the first programs that was shot and traveled around. I don't know how he even did it in the 50s. There was no tape. Everybody had live shows in each city. And somehow Jim Crockett figured out how to put together the first network of wrestling programs in the series of big cities. Great guy, a brilliant mind, a brilliant wrestling mind. Jack Pfeffer, Boston. Up in the Massachusetts area. Jack Pfeffer is an off the wall kind of dude. My dad used to go up there and wrestle for Jack Pfeffer. Jack Pfeffer had what he called his own world champion, and he brought dad up there, and dad was his champion at one time. The world heavyweight champion was Buddy Fuller for Jack Pfeffer up in the northeastern part of the United States. Gene Kaninsky. Let's start Canada. We're going to cross Canada. We're going to go Gene Kaninsky in Vancouver. Becomes the world heavyweight champion in 65, I think. So late 64, 65. In that era there, Gene Kaninsky, big, brawny, burly guy, hard to work with, stiffer than dang concrete, and a great athlete, a great mind. Did a super job in Western Canada. New movies, you got Stu Hart, and everybody knows that family. You got the Bret Harts and the Owen Harts, and a big, huge wrestling family similar to my own. Not as big as we were, and not around for as long as we were, but every bit as important probably as we were. A tremendous family in wrestling. I have great Stu Hart stories. I'm so, I'm having to hold my tongue to keep from jumping on him right here because I love him. 
he's a god. Uh, he's uh, one of those, uh, when you talk to him, he's like, uh, gotta run uh, with the Archie. How's Archie? I mean, he is a classic guy. So you got Stu Hart in Calgary. You got the Rougeaus in Montreal. You've got hot wrestling there. You've got uh, guys that uh, just go on to be fabulous stars out of Canada. And they coming back and forth from the United States. They're learning from Southern promoters and they're going north like Yvonne Robert way back in the 50s with my dad in, in uh, Gulf Coast Wrestling who goes back into Montreal, becomes a big star there. You've got Vince Sr. in the Northeast. Obviously, you've got Vern Gagne the classic in Minneapolis, and he's going to spread eventually to Denver across the western part of the United States. And they're all on fire everywhere. They are doing great. In the rest of the world, Japan, you've got all Japan that's now starting up. It's getting cranked. You've got Baba. This is pre-Baba, but they're already becoming huge wrestling fans of Japan. It's a whole different game when you go to Japan because you are known when you arrive there. You get off the plane and people are coming up to you before you get to pick up your bags. They know who you are. They're a phenomenal wrestling group out of Japan. Australia is just in its infancy, pre Barnett. Barnett's going to light it up. But pre-Barnett, they're starting to have matches in Australia. England, big wrestling country, always has been. Shooter cities, Wigham, England. Uh, you know, the, the stories out of England are just phenomenal. Talent there just comes by the tons and tons. Even in my era, you got the Tony Charles the Adrian Streets. I mean, you have these guys that come out of England. You've got the Gordy Nelson. They're shooters. They're bad. They're, they're flamboyant. They're crazy. It's a phenomenal place for wrestling. And right now, Tony, it's hot again. England is the hottest place in the world for wrestling right now. It's making a tremendous comeback in England. Europe there's wrestling everywhere in Europe, all the different countries. I don't know a lot of the promoters. I have made few trips to Europe to wrestle over there. I've been in Spain and wrestled some in Spain and along the Mediterranean. But I've never met the guys that run the German operations in those places. But they're all doing well because television is proliferated just like it did in this country. It's proliferated around the world. And with it, its major product is wrestling because it's easy to do and it's studio involved and it's quick and easy operation. We record it. You show it. People are going to love it. They're going to they're going to pursue it. They're going to get interested in it. They're going to stay with it for their lifetimes. Mexico, great wrestling country, but a totally different animal. I mean, they're all wearing masks. You don't know who the hell they are. They're the Mill Mascarises and all those guys. You know, a thousand masks. There are a thousand masks every night in every town. It's like they want to cover their faces, but they do the wildest, craziest things in the ring that you've ever seen. They are an entity into themselves. They are still blowing it up. They are still great. So the world is cranked. They're all worldwide. They're going, wow, this wrestling is unbelievable. And in most countries, it truly is unbelievable. The sport is still wrestling related. It's all back to Shooterville. It's all back to that very, very rugged history that we, we all came from or that I came from and my dad came from, my granddad came from. And they're still carrying the torch of all the others 
that are that are lighting up fans all over the world. To me, we're getting into a period here between the 60s and the 80s and on into the 80s in which wrestling is at its absolute peak in popularity. It's at its greatest point that it ever comes to. And until Vince arrives, it's going to be something that that the people that enjoy it are never going to forget it. They'll never turn it loose in their heart. And you only create that type of thing when you are truly invested in it with your mind and your body. And every one of these guys and every city and all these parts of the country and all these parts of the world, I'll guarantee you they are invested in it, man. They want it and they are making it, making it real. You know, you think about, all those great names that you just mentioned, those historical names, the Shires of the world, the Owens of the world, the Funks, the Paul Boshes, the Muchniks, Gurk, who you talked about earlier, Crockett Sr., Pfeffer, Stu Hart, the Rougeos, Eddie Graham, Cowboy Luttrell, Jim Barnett, those types of people. You think about them taking young wrestlers and veteran guys and just kind of trading them back and forth, you know, and having a cycle where... You come in here, you have a shelf life, and you do a couple programs, and then it's on to the next territory. And there's enough out there for you to make a terrific living. But even more to the point, you think about what the wrestling fan in those days saw. At the end of all that, through that process, they saw seasoned guys. They didn't see kids wearing belts that they wouldn't call championships like you do today. They didn't see sports entertainment. They saw guys that would bust themselves open the hard way. They saw guys that had to pay their dues, and they saw a system where the cream truly had to rise to the top. I mean, it must have been a great blessing to be a wrestling fan in those towns and get a chance to see that stuff. And we're talking about week in and week out in these towns where they would light these towns on fire. That's a beautiful thing if you stop and think about it, that system. The system was absolutely wonderful. And on the wrestling side of it, you're exactly right. For the fans, it was absolutely phenomenal because the process kept bringing them. You just kept having your stars of today are going to be your stars of tomorrow. They're going to come back. They're going to leave. They're going to be replaced by people you've never heard of. And you're going to, within three months, go, God, I love these guys. Where did he come from? And when he leaves, their fan is going to go, my, what happened to so-and-so? And when so-and-so comes back, it's going to light them up again. They're going to go, oh, my gosh, look who's back on my show again. And if you're a wrestler, it's a wonderful process, too, because you're right. The cream rises to the top, and when you get to be one of those top guys and you have the ability to to call your own shots, you can say, hey, look, I'm ready to go, and I want to go here. I want to go there. I was at a point in 1974 where I could pick up the phone and within two minutes book myself in any place in the world that I wanted to go because I had a reputation that preceded me. And people said, geez, Ron, you want to come here? I said, I'd like to work one night. I'd like to work one week. If I said I want to work for three months and leave, they would take me and use me great because I was a good talent. So if you worked hard enough and you built your reputation and you did the right types of things 
and your reputation preceded you, you could call your own shots. You could go wherever in the world you wanted to go. And I took advantage of it. A lot of guys didn't. I took those international trips. I went to countries I wanted to visit. I stayed in Australia for three months one time. I spent time in Japan. I've spent time in Europe. I have did all the islands in the Caribbean. I've done Canada. I've done Mexico. I've been there. It was a phenomenal way of living. Really great stuff today from the stud. We're off to a tremendous start here. We come back. David Summers has a few words to tell you. This stud cast features the original Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and his co-host, Tony Basilio. We'll be right back. Don't make me come over there. It's finally here. It's the official opening of the stud store. Take a ride now through the stud store at tnstud.com. Four great photos are available with more to come. 8x10 glossy photos, including shipping, handling, and personally autographed to you by the Tennessee stud himself. And coming soon, the first in a series of original t-shirts that will all be a must-have item for Studcast fans. Studcast koozies, buttons, and a vintage DVD of Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, containing matches and interviews from his historic career. Also coming soon, due to the tremendous demand, the first CD in the Studcast historical collection. Collection. Each CD will contain five studcasts plus a brand new highlight episode and an exclusive thank you from the stud himself. These CDs will contain over five hours of stud stories and are perfect for friends, older family members that can't access the internet, and someone like you. Shop TNStud.com to own your own piece of wrestling history today. That's TNStud.com. You are back seated ringside on this edition of the Ron. Fuller Studcast. Tony Basilio back with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. So blessed to be with you. And it's a thrill to hear Ron talk about his grandfather and what a classic man Roy was. Real hard-headed man, no doubt. His own man, certainly different. And we're back with you on the Studcast. 93 years, four generations a tremendous tree of wrestlers. So much to unpack here. So many characters, so many stories. But now it's time for you to be heard. Stud, welcome back for another segment. Great to have you back, man. You really laid it out there in that last segment. That was storytelling. I mean, I thought we were sitting around a campfire. I was ready to get me a nice little hotty toddy here and eat some s'mores. Incredible work by you, Stud, in that last segment. Well, thank you. And this pretty much just rolls out of my mouth. I lived it. It was a phenomenal thing to be able to grow up around that type of person because you, especially if you're going to be a wrestler, if you're going to be in the wrestling business, he was the greatest role model a person could probably have. He was everything it took to be a star and to be a businessman. He was a smart guy and a crazy son of a gun. That's about all I can say about it. You talked about as being a kid. I think people would find this real interesting. I know I would. What were some of the venues, some of the places that he took you as a kid? What do you remember about those times? Because certainly the sport was seen differently. It was not presented as the cartoon that it is now. We're deep in the kayfabe era there. What do you remember about specific places, venues, different wrestlers, and seeing it through the eyes of a, of a young boy? Can you 
you recall anything there? You mean, obviously, I saw all kinds of talent. I saw Bearcat Brown in Birmingham. I saw Lynn Rossi in Nashville. I saw stars in different cities. Memphis, the Fargos. The Fargos were real big at that time in Memphis. I saw my dad wrestle occasionally. I saw Lester wrestle. I saw Herb wrestle. I saw family members that were in their heyday. They were really, really good at that point. And I think it was probably back in those times, Tony, that I really said to myself, this is what I want to do. Crowds were big. They were extremely enthusiastic. It was it was showtime. It was like stars. I mean, everywhere we went, when we would stop and eat or whatever, he would be recognized. People would go, you're Roy Welch. You're that wrestler. You know, he was always very polite to people and cordial to fans. He had a personality about him. He would put his arms around people he didn't know. You know, the guy would say, hey, uh," he'd say, what's your name? And the guy would say, I'm John Smith. And well, come here, John. You know, he put his arms around him and geez, man. Where are you from, man? And then he'd want to hear the stories. He'd want to hear their story. He had a softness to him and a very, very tough side to him as well. And I don't think there's ever been a person on earth just like Roy. He he had his own thing. If we've got a few, another, I've got one more story for you. This could kind of really grasp it too. There's a guy named Herb Langston. He is a promoter for Roy. He's promoting in the Tri-Cities. Johnson City, Kingsport and Bristol, Tennessee. The wrestlers are complaining to Roy. They say, we're not getting a proper payoff from there. I think this guy, Herb, is stealing, Herb Langston is stealing the, stealing money. So Roy goes, okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll check that out. So his way of checking things out is he shows up at the town one night. He doesn't tell Herb Langston that he's coming. Herb Langston is a little scrawny, small guy. He's lucky to have this spot where he's handling business for Roy. And Roy's got to trust you or he's going to, you're, you're finished, obviously. So he goes and watches the front door that night, sits out there in his car. Herb doesn't know he's there. Even the wrestlers don't know he's there. And then he surprises Herb. He comes in. He says, I want to see the tickets. I want to see the house how much the money is. So he catches him basically red-handed stealing his money. He goes and talks to the boys. He says, I'm going to take care of this problem. I found this guy's a thief. He says, I'm going to take care of this problem. He goes back and he gets Herb Langston and he carries him out to where his car is. He pulls his car around close to the dressing room because he wants the boys to see him punish Herb Langston. So the boys hear his Cadillac pull up there. He has Herb in his car. He says, get out. He takes him up to the front of his car. And all the wrestlers, they got a window there. They climb up on the bench and they can see out the window what's going on. So he takes Herb Langston. He picks him up by the sides of his body and raises him way up in the air and slams him ass first on the hood of his Cadillac. And then he gives him the old thumb in the throat, which is his signature deal. He shoves that thumb in there and cuts off that air. The wrestlers are watching this, and he says, and Herb tells me the story. Herb's one of the guys that are there. And he says, Roy puts his thumb in his throat, and he says, listen, you little scrawny piss ant. He goes, 
I should beat the hell out of you. If you was any type of man, I would. But here's the way I'm going to handle you. And he just starts thumping him in the eye. He thumps him around the eye, just above the eye and off to the side of it with his finger. Pow, 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 pow. And Herb starts screaming and he thumps him until one eye gets black and it's starting to swell and he moves to the other eye. Pow, pow, pow. Very slow and methodical. Pow, pow, pow. And he just can't. Once his eyes are totally swollen, he says, I don't want to ever see you again. If I do, I'm going to knock them out. I'm not going to thump them. I'm going to knock them out. That's the way he handled his business. He had a little different way of doing it. He could have very easily just stomped this guy all to pieces, but he just thumped his eyes black. Herb liked to tell a story. He says, he said, I never saw an eye thumping like that. It was Roy, nothing like him. As they say, God broke the mold when he made Roy Welch. Yeah, Tony, you're right. Roy was one of a kind, and he paved the way, no doubt about that, for my great career that I had for so many years. And without Roy, I could have never performed in many of the venues that I did, especially like New York City. As a kid, I don't think any kid in America and maybe even around the world isn't familiar with one venue as being the best place ever if you're an athlete to do do your thing. And that's Madison Square Garden in New York City. And I, I felt like the first time I went there in 1973, I was invited by Vince Sr. I felt like I had become a star when I went to New York to wrestle in Madison Square Garden. Obviously, when you go in there and you're in the ring and you turn 360 degrees and you see those balconies full of people, it's like being a part of history. And I really love going to wrestle in New York City. It's a, obviously it's a unique city anyway. It's the monster in America, the biggest one we have. And that building is the most famous building in America. It may be the most famous arena in the world. What about in the Southeast? What about a venue in the Southeast that you found, hey, I, I just love the vibe of this place? The Omni in Atlanta. When the Omni was new, that was a tremendous building to go into. It used to draw huge crowds. It was exciting. It was close to home. And I actually graduated from high school in Atlanta, was an all-state basketball player in the state of Georgia. That, to me, was one of my favorites. I love the old Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. Big beautiful round facility like the garden in New York. And there were consistently 11 to 15,000 people in that building. It was uh, electric in there. Fact that you're a wrestler to go into these big buildings and to see these huge crowds and to feel that excitement and to get those goosebumps. You get those goosebumps in them big buildings like that. You know, it doesn't take much. I just really enjoyed the building in America, the Madison Square Garden. It's incredible how fast today's show is going. I do want to remind you that the website is tnstud.com. Again, tnstud.com. Also on Facebook, Ron Fuller Welch. Again, Ron Fuller Welch. 
man, this thing is really picking up steam, brother. Yeah, it, it really is. It's truly amazing. I just, I keep saying I'm humbled, but I am humbled. I truly am. I never expected it to be this type of response. I thought that a few people might still remember me and this would be something they would come to. But it's exploded into something much greater than I think either of us ever anticipated it would be. Now I'm just getting picked up on so many programs with such huge stars. Podcasts are becoming my life. You know, I never thought that would be the case. And I tell stories for, as an example, Jim Cornette. I have my own segment on Jim Cornette's show that he runs sometimes. He calls them stud stories. I enjoy telling them. And I'm becoming relevant again, Tony. Uh, you Quit know, saying I, that. <laughs> You've, always been rele- You've always been relevant, man. Quit saying that. Yeah, well, to me, you know, I never thought that I'd make a comeback at the age that I am. But in a way, I'm making a comeback. I'm becoming something that I never was even. I never realized the historical value I have in my head and beginning now to to take hold in my mind that this is, truly is a different and a unique podcast. There is nothing like it. Most people talk to guests. Most people go from one subject to another and from one place to another. We're doing a chronological, historical documentary here of the sport that maybe has never been done in the history of the sport in the detail that we're doing it. And I'm so proud and honored to have the opportunity to do it and to have the stuff still in my head from all the years back. It's really an experience for me. And and I have one of the best guys I could possibly have sitting across from me. And you're more knowledgeable than I ever had any idea when we started here, Tony. I didn't know that you knew near as much as what you know about wrestling. And it's just been a wonderful experience. It's been a great ride. I keep saying on my a lot of tweets and things, I say ride with the stud. This has been a really tremendous ride. And I'm just really thrilled by it. I'm thrilled by the response. It's fabulous just being a part of it. I just love, from my standpoint, us getting a chance to do this together. From my end, it's just, and this is what I feel when I do this. First of all, it does not surprise me that people are inviting you to do countless podcasts because you're a tremendous storyteller. And that's why I wish you would quit saying I'm relevant again. You've always been relevant. It's just for you, it's just been a matter of having the courage or the want to to walk back out on that stage. And you got to put yourself out there when you start telling your life story. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are. But the other thing that you bring, and you sell yourself short on this, but this is what you bring. This is why the Jim Cornettes of the world, he's no dummy, and the Brian Lass of the world have invited you into their world, is that you've got tremendous passion, and you've got tremendous respect, and you've got tremendous love for this thing that we all share. You know, to the outside world, this thing we all share, this love of wrestling— is a silly thing. Some people say, well, you guys have never grown out of it. No, because it's a part of our heart and soul. It's a part of our DNA. And we're not laughing at anybody. We're not calling anybody marks. We're sharing in no matter what side of this transaction we're on, whether we're a fan, whether we're a performer, whether a promoter like you, we all have this thing in our heart that calls us to this magical journey. And man, you chronicle it. You bring it to life. Quit saying you're you're relevant again. You've never been irrelevant, Tennessee Stud. You've never been irrelevant. 
Yeah, well, you know, I guess I'm not irrelevant. You know, I think because I retired in 1988 and I went into a totally different sport, I somehow transferred and forward progressed, whatever the term may be, from wrestling to hockey of all sports. And later on in life, transferred again in a totally different direction to an honest to God job or business that is just like many other businesses of the country, an ADT dealership. I mean, I have been in so many things, and to come back to wrestling again, which I've always said, even in the years after I left and I went in these directions, I always said to myself, I want to finish my life in wrestling somehow. And this, I think, is the answer to, to my prayer is the good Lord has placed me back into a position to not just come back to the sport, but to come back to the sport and maybe leave something for all time for people that would have never known what things were like back from the 20s and prior to the 20s all the way for a hundred years. And I just relish the opportunity. I just am humbled by the total number of people the numbers are just staggering at this point and the podcast has just become the stud cast is a phenomena in america and i thank everyone out there that listens to it it's a magical and beautiful thing this ride as you've ridden today with the stud again i want to encourage you to hit the Facebook page, Ron Fuller Welch. Also, online website is tnstud.com. Again, tnstud.com. For the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. This is Tony Basilio reminding you, once again, to come back, spread the word for us. And by the way, you can check me out during the week at tonybasilio.com. Also, check out our Southeastern Sunday Night program, which airs on Periscope, Facebook Live, and you can find it from 7 to 9 Eastern as we talk Southeastern Conference and also ACC football. So we talk about the Southeast and we celebrate the sport of football, just like we're doing here with the sport of Kings. For the stud, Tony Basilio, turn it over to my man, David. Another stud cast is in the books. Thanks for joining us today for this historic stud cast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. This Studcast is distributed by Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.